Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. From the new marijuana retail license lottery to racism in the Connecticut Department of Transportation, we talked to the new Connecticut Inside Investigator about what they're uncovering in the name of news and the public interest. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. The news media world continues to fragment in this digital age as people consume their news from different sources, be that local, national or international news. Over the past several years, we have seen local newspapers disappear, TV and radio news stations being bought up by ever larger corporations, and as a result, our news is becoming less local and less relevant which means we're turning to other sources to get our local and daily news from online news outlets to podcasts like this one. So it is encouraging to see that despite all of this, there are still organisations out there willing to dip their toe into the sea of news and not only report it, but investigate it as well. A few weeks ago, a new online news outlet opened for business in Connecticut and already it's been turning heads with its investigative reporting. Joining us on Connecticut East this week is Connor Dragotis, who's managing editor of the new Connecticut Inside Investigator. And also joining us is their senior investigative reporter, Mark Fitch. Connor and Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Brian. Yeah, it's good to be here. So, Connor, I'm going to start with you as the managing editor. Tell us about this new news outlet called Connecticut Inside Investigator. Yeah, well, again, thanks so much for having us on. And we're really excited. We just got started here on April 20th. And our goal is really simple. We want to provide interesting and educational news, investigations and opinions to root out corruption in and improve Connecticut. And, uh, you know, copy and pasted mission and vision statement aside, what that really means is we want to work toward a better Connecticut. And we think one of the best ways to do that is to provide really great investigative journalism looking at things that other people might not have time to cover and really digging deep to deliver the stories that people want to hear. And Mark, you come from the Yankee Institute. So I'm going to ask you a little bit about that as well, because this is a project, I believe, of the Yankee Institute. Tell us a little bit about the Institute and also your role in all of this. Oh, sure. Yeah. So Yankee Institute is a free market-based public policy think tank. And They advocate for legislation at the Capitol. And six years ago, they brought me on as a reporter. And, you know, I've been kind of, I was doing my thing there for a while. And it got to the point where it was like, you know, we should probably separate out the journalism from the legislative agenda. So this way, you know, while we're technically a project of Yankee Institute. We're separately managed. So myself and Connor kind of run the show here at Inside Investigator. And this way we can focus exclusively on journalism and Yankee Institute can do their thing with public policy. And it, it was also a way, you know, 
how many people are going to go to a think tank for news. We should set up a separate brand that is able to focus exclusively on that. And we were able to hire some great reporters and a great digital media guy. And I think we hit the ground running. And, you know, I think we've already made a couple waves, even though we've only been going for about two weeks. We'll be getting into that in a little bit more. I just wanted to ask this question, and maybe this is for, for Connor, or it could be for you, Mark. I mean, the financing, obviously, of this project, I'm assuming that the financing initially is maybe coming from the Yankee Institute. And if that is the case, do they have any editorial input into what you're doing? That's a great question. I think it's probably one of the most important questions when you think about what makes good investigative journalism and news generally is the ability to write and produce content free from any sort of bias or or insight or someone saying, hey, you need to write about this. And I think it's really important that we say this right up front. The Yankee Institute does not have editorial control over what we write. It was certainly one of the uh, conditions of, of me taking on this project. And I think it's really important and something you can already see in the types of stories that we're digging into. Also, to, to answer the question about money directly, like most nonprofits, we don't share the names of individual donors. You know, We do share as a program of the Yankee Institute. Money certainly comes through that C3. What I also think is really important to say there, though, is we do not accept any money with editorial strings attached, period. Donors who give to us and support our work at CII give because they support our mission to inform the people of Connecticut and share our vision of a better Connecticut where corruption has been rooted out. And what that really gives us the ability to do is to tell stories the way that they should be told, free from any sort of other influence other than truth, other than facts, other than transparency and delivering the best product to our readers, which for me, man, that's optimistic. That's exciting. That gives us the opportunity to do something that's really cool, really fun. And hopefully our readers can already see that in the product that we're putting out. And Connor, give us a little bit of your background as well, because Mark gave us a bit of his background. And we made the point that obviously he was with uh, with Yankee Institute. So just tell us a little bit about who is Connor Dragotas. I mean, managing editor, clearly top dog there or one of the top dogs. But what's your background? You know, what are you bringing to the table, as it were? Yeah, I think top dog is a really generous way to say it, mostly because I feel so lucky to work with this team of people who really think deeply about what they do. I mean, I, it's a phrase that I've used a couple of times, but I feel privileged to be in the room with people who want to take visionary action. I'm a native Mainer. Uh, I grew up in Southern Maine. My mother grew up in Connecticut, and it's a place uh, that I have spent a tremendous amount of time. It's, it's a state that I genuinely care about. A lot of my family in Connecticut is impacted by what's going on there every single day. Prior to working with CII, I worked... I guess in two capacities that are relevant and important here. One is as director at a couple nonprofits dealing with corruption, First Amendment issues. So I was dealing with both from the communication side, also with some development stuff. And then separate from that, I was also a adjunct professor at Lehigh University, where I taught business communications and got to work with undergraduate students, of course, on the general premise of, hey, here's how to do good business writing, and here's how to make compelling arguments but also to really help people understand, you know, what are they working toward? What is your purpose as a student when you get out into the real world? What is that going to be like for you? And how do you maximize the time that you have in this beautiful life to do something really incredible? And I think that's one of the best parts about this organization and this job is getting to work with people who come to work every day excited to do some really incredible things. And again, deliver that really in-depth investigative piece that these reporters care about so, so much. 
Yeah, I just want to pick up on that a little bit. And, and I'm not saying this, and please don't take this as me being derogatory at, <laughs> at all towards obviously your organization. But, you know, the media world is fragmented. We see that, you know, niching all the time. What is it yeah. that's, that's new or different that you guys are bringing? Because I think we can all agree there isn't enough investigative journalism. And the reason behind that is because it is actually costly and it takes a lot of time. And you also have to have an organization willing to do that. And clearly, you know, you're going to get into that and we're going to talk more about that. But what is it that's new and different that you feel that you guys are bringing to this? You know, I'd, I'd be curious to get Mark's thoughts on this. And I'll, I'll jump in real quick, which is to say that I think we've differentiated ourselves right from the get go by bringing together a newsroom of diverse viewpoints. I think, Mark, you could correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think our team has a progressive, a liberal, conservative of different stripes. Uh, I'm a laissez-faire capitalist. And these are different paths that each of us have chosen that are best for our lives. But every single one of us comes to the table every day with a shared commitment to CII's mission. I think you're right, Brian, to, to point out, you know, across the media landscape in Connecticut, there are a ton of different viewpoints. But I also don't think that investigative journalism is a zero-sum game. Everyone who wants less corruption and a better Connecticut, hey, we're all on the same team. And ov obviously, that's a really optimistic outlook. But it's foundational to who we are at CII. We're optimistic about a better Connecticut. And I think that we're going to have a lot of fun along the way, along this path to making that a reality. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, as far as viewpoints, I mean, I don't even know what I am anymore, frankly. <laughs> you know, everything's changed so much that I've kind of given up having any opinion that isn't just contrarian in some respect. So, but as far as the, the media landscape in Connecticut, I mean, we've got We've got some great media outlets. We've got some great reporters. CT Mirror, for one, I mean, they, they do great stuff. The Hartford Current, I mean, their columnist, Kevin Rennie, broke one of the biggest stories of the past year, even though, you know, their capacity has really been dwindled away uh, because of the, uh, the, the takeover by the private equity firm. So, but while I was, you know, working for Yankee, I would get people coming to me saying, I went to this outlet, I went to that outlet, I went to this person, I went to that person, nobody's listening. Will you look at my look at what I'm saying? Will you look at my story? Will you look at my information? And I would, you know, and sometimes that doesn't work. A lot of times that doesn't work out. You know, a lot of times there's a reason that other reporters didn't take this on. But sometimes you you hit on something and it's there and it's it's a good story. And so I would run with it. And I think, you know, we do have, like I said, we have great outlets, we have great reporters, but people are busy, busy. And when you're doing news of the day and there's news coming out all the time, if you're going to do an article on every press release that comes out of the governor's office or the AG's office, and they send a lot of them every day, you know, you're going to have a reporter sitting there writing up four to five quick hit stories every day. They don't have the time to go digging into something in depth. And one of the things that was great about my job at Yankee was I pretty much had self-control. I mean, I could, could write an article that day or I could not and focus my time and attention on something else. And really what we wanted to do with this project is enable it so that we, yeah, we can do, we can do some news of the day, but frankly, there's a lot of, you know, reporters already covering that. But we wanted, also wanted to free up time for our reporters to go digging up their own stories, go digging up their own investigations. And whenever we get tips, we drop it into the hopper and see who can come up with what. 
and give them the time to work on it. And we spent a lot of time leading up to our launch working on pieces. And now that we've launched, we're grinding away. I can tell you one of our reporters, Tom, probably just put in a 48-hour marathon session putting together a piece for Sunday, but we give them the opportunity to do that. And this is a this is a piece that I think wasn't getting covered and now it will in a, in a big way. Let's talk about that a little bit more, Mark, because investigations, of course, are the core part of what this new news outlet is about, as well as doing, obviously, as you said, everyday news as well. And you sort of like touched upon this in, in what you were just saying, that you've already sort of like blown a few good stories out of the water, which have certainly raised it certainly raised my eyes when I read them. And I'm sure it raised quite a few other people's eyes as well. Two, I just wanted to quickly touch on uh, with you, obviously, marijuana, hopefully by the end of this year, we're going to start seeing some recreational marijuana being purchased retail wise. So there's that one that you you mentioned. Let's talk about that, because it's not everything it seems to be, is it? You know, what I did is I followed along to entrepreneurs who are trying to get into the retail marijuana space through the social equity licensing part of Connecticut's law. So, you know, in Connecticut, you can have a general retail license, which is going to cost you upwards of $3 million. Or you can, if you're a qualified social equity applicant, you can get a social equity license for much cheaper. And that's designed to make retail marijuana available to residents of communities that have been negatively affected by the past war on drugs. Part of the problem, though, is that in their efforts to make it equitable, they actually made it so complicated that the equity part kind of gets lost. So they, in trying to make it fair, they actually might have made it unfair. It's, it's, it's a long, complicated law. There are a lot of hoops to jump through. Even if you are a qualified social equity applicant and you know the people I interviewed, Tiana Hercules and Luis Vega, these are serious people who put in a lot of time and effort into getting their application ready, but then they're subject to a lottery. So all this time and all this time and effort they put into trying to build this business is going to be subject to essentially the roll of a dice. And that makes it very difficult for someone to kind of get started in that business. So, I mean, marijuana is technically legal, but it's not like beer, you know, it's not like liquor. It's not, it, it's so heavily regulated and the licenses are so heavily protected that it's not like you can just go out and open up a shop. There's a lot of hoops to jump through. And so in trying to create equity, they made it so complicated that it almost emulates the very states like, you know, Massachusetts or Colorado that they were trying to not mimic, try to correct the, the mistakes that some of those states may have made. Yeah, it's an interesting, we'll obviously all be following it. And uh, I'm sure over time that uh, we're going to see changes to the uh, to the legislation to that. The other one I wanted to pick up on with you as well fairly recently was published obviously on the site was to do with the Connecticut uh, Department of Transportation. That was another, again, very interesting investigation that was put out by you guys there. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I was put in touch with uh, uh, Luis Ortiz, who is a uh, Department of Transportation employee of 10 years. And, you know, I talked to him on the phone and he said, you know, all this stuff is happening to me. There's all this being called racial slurs and all, all these different things. And I have a, a court case and the court case is going to be ending and all this kind of stuff. 
And so I, this is literally how it went. I met him in a stopping, stop and shop parking lot, talked to him for a little while. He hands me, God, thousands, like this, this giant stack of papers, you know, all these documents that he's printed out over the, the course of his time battling the, these, these discrimination issues. And it must have weighed 10 pounds. And I said, all right, well, I'm going to go make some copies and we'll meet here in a couple of days. So I go make all my copies, bring it back to him. And then myself and our reporter, Tom Hopkins, start combing through it. And it was a lot. So basically, the, the real gist of it is that when employees in Connecticut face discrimination or race-based harassment, there, is a set, there, there are set administrative hoops that you have to jump through. And if you don't jump through them precisely and on time, you're going to be kind of out of luck. So, you know, DOT did their own internal investigation. They confirmed some of Luis Ortiz's claims and those people were punished. And, and we're talking, you know, we're talking some serious things, you know, you, you drop in racial slurs and things like that. And the punishment for those people were three-day suspensions. In one case, a manager got a 10-day suspension. But for Luis, in filing these claims, he has been put on, you know, he's been called in for fact-finding finding meeting after fact-finding meeting, which is basically you're in trouble and we're going to figure out how to punish you. He's been passed over for raises and promotions because as soon as he filed his very first claim, he suddenly had three, within a month, three infractions against him, which passed him, which meant he couldn't get a raise that was due to him. I remember reading, reading it. And just as I said, it's, it is very eye opening. And I don't want to like give it away too much more, because obviously, it's important that people read your work and go to, to the website. But it's something that you wouldn't necessarily think of happening here in Connecticut, yet it does happen. It happens every day. And, you know, all I'm going to say is I'm, I will urge, you know, the listeners of the podcast to go to obviously Inside Investigator and read up on that and, and obviously the other investigations that are there. We've um, not got a lot of time left, so I just quickly wanted to talk about this thing called the Investigative Fellowship, which is something that is available to freelance writers. And Connor just wondered if you wanted to talk us through that and, and why you've decided to have that program. You know, I don't think that CII is going to be the most successful organization if we're just yelling into the void or trying to be the loudest voice in the room. Like I said before, I don't think that investigative journalism is a zero-sum game. And there are a lot of people out there who are already doing really important, incredible work to shine a light on corruption in this state. And we want to put our money where our mouth is when, when we talk about being part of the provider of this education, this knowledge to the public. And one of the ways that we're doing that is by offering a fellowship every month that pays $3,000 to a writer to produce a single investigative piece that would be featured on the Inside Investigator website, along with work from our full-time staff. So we're accepting pitches on a rolling basis, but the foundational principle there is kind of as Mark alluded to, there are so many stories out there important human stories of people that are having either their rights violated or are up against the wall, have been backed into a corner. We're also interested in telling the stories of those who have triumphed over obstacles to their happiness, right? We want to tell happy stories as well. It shouldn't all be just these doom and gloom things. It's about better, not just 
getting better, but also showing how success has happened. And it's more than any one staff could do alone. So we would love to have aspiring writers, seasoned writers, journalists who just feel like, hey, I want to write something different and I can't do it at my home outlet. We would love to receive a pitch from you, hopefully figure out a way to bring you into this fellowship and and create something really cool. Bring us the bloggers and the retired reporters and, you know, absolutely. Hey, it's your chance to make some, uh, some good money for a single piece. Well, not only that, as we were saying, I mean, this type of journalism doesn't come cheap either. So uh, obviously, that's a great incentive for those journalists. And as you say, the other writers as well, because it's not something that is just a five minute job if they're going to do it right. So it's great that you guys are there. We welcome you to obviously the digital media landscape here in Connecticut. And the more the merrier is what I say, because you can never have enough journalists making sure that uh, democracy is kept on point. And therefore, to Connor and to Mark of Connecticut Inside Investigator, thank you ever so much for joining us. Like, congratulations on what is an amazing start and some incredible journalism that's already out there. And we look forward to seeing what else you guys unearth over you know the the next few months and and hopefully many many years to come thanks again thank you so much much, Brian. to find out more about connecticut inside investigator and to subscribe to its news alerts visit their website at insideinvestigator.org when you're high you feel different You think different, you talk different, you draw different, you listen to music different, but you probably knew that. Problem is, you also drive different, and not in a good way. That's why driving high is illegal everywhere. So if you're high, just don't drive. Make a plan to get a sober ride. Because if you feel different, you drive different. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. It's mulch season, so come and visit Green Valley Tree LLC. We have a variety of colors for all your landscaping needs. Buy as much or as little as you want. Pick it up or we can deliver to your door. Call Green Valley Tree LLC for all your mulch, plant health care, and tree service needs at 860-234-4041. Or find us at 577 Boston Post Road, North Windham, Connecticut. We are family-owned and fully licensed. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently, sponsored by... Every number tells a story. A true story. Connecticut by the Numbers explores breakthroughs and challenges, issues and answers. Behind the headlines, across the state, Follow the numbers. Connecticut news that counts. CTNumbers.news. Connecticut lawmakers, state officials and pro-choice advocates gathered at the state capitol recently after a leaked draft opinion indicated the U.S. Supreme Court could overturn the decision in Roe v. Wade. Emily Scott from the Connecticut News Service has the latest. That would leave the question of abortion rights and access up to states. Days before the draft was released, the Connecticut General Assembly passed the Reproductive Freedom Defense Act. It protects in-state medical providers from legal action connected to abortion restrictions in other states. State Representative Jillian Gilcrest, who co-chairs the Reproductive Rights Caucus, says the high court document indicates a disregard for bodily autonomy. Women and pregnant people will only truly be free when they have access to all of their reproductive health care, including abortion care. I am horrified by this leaked opinion. 
but I am more horrified about what we are about to see happen to women across this country in the coming days. The bill also allows some advanced practitioners to provide abortion care. Governor Ned Lamont has said he will sign it into law as soon as it arrives on his desk. The Supreme Court decision won't be finalized until it's officially published, most likely in the next two months. I'm Emily Scott. U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal announced $200,000 in funding for the Southeastern Regional Action Council recently. Michelle Devine is the director of CRAC and explained what the money will be used for. With this funding, CRAC will establish well-being teams that will be made up of community volunteers. Their purpose will be to inspire new collaboratives, increase social involvement in our various town initiatives. It is an important priority that we engage and hear the voices of residents. Blumenthal said these rural communities have the same problems as any other town or city. A lot of folks imagine small towns as being idyllic, oases of no problems, no challenges, kind of small towns in the way that Norman Rockwell would depict them. But in fact, just like every other part of our state, small towns have endured hardship and heartbreak of this pandemic time. The funding will help CRAC add three new staff member positions to provide mental health and addiction services to 13 towns across eastern Connecticut. CRAC says rural communities in eastern Connecticut have been hit particularly hard with high levels of addiction, suicide and death brought about through isolation due to the COVID pandemic. The funding was secured through the 2022 Omnibus Appropriations Bill. Navy personnel, local legislators and Gold Star families in Connecticut participated in a flag garden dedication ceremony at Subbase New London, marking May as Gold Star Awareness Month. Captain Kenneth Curtin is the 53rd commanding officer of Subbase New London and said recognition of the military and Gold Star families and their lost loved ones needs to increase. According to a Pew Research survey, 83% of Americans say veterans and military families have made a lot of sacrifices since 9-11. And according to the same poll, while a majority of Americans say they have directly expressed their admiration for veterans, 84% of veterans say the public does not understand the problems faced by service members and their families. Helen Kaiser-Peterson is president of the Connecticut Department of American Gold Star Mothers and lost her son Andrew, who was a Special Forces soldier, in 2013 when he was killed in action in Afghanistan. I have a job now to carry on, but America's job is to begin to learn who Gold Star Mothers are and Gold Star Families. America's job is to instantly recognize Gold Star Whatever the following word, mother, father, son, daughter, gold star, is our sacrifice. In World War II, around 10% of the American population was in or connected to the military, compared to just 1% today. Gold Star Awareness Month was introduced in 2015 to help reinforce the public's understanding of the Navy Gold Star program, recognizing the sacrifice of families who had lost loved ones serving in the U.S. military. Greg Howard, the state representative for Connecticut's 43rd district, will be hosting a trade fair in May to celebrate local industry, but also to encourage young people to consider vocational education if college isn't for them. Howard is also a career police officer and father and recalls his own years growing up. In 1997, there was a young man in Wesley, Rhode Island, sitting in in high school English class, getting into a lot of trouble because he didn't like to sit still. He wanted to be moving and doing things. And today he's a 20-year detective and a state representative for the 43rd, even though 
he was told that he would be nothing because he didn't want to read Beowulf and wasn't interested in it. Howard says he's not anti-further education, but just wants to show young people there are other paths to employment and to personal success. If you're going to go become a college-educated engineer and you hate sitting still, you're not going to be successful. I mean, you might make a lot of money, but you're not going to be happy. You're going to be frustrated. But if you like to put things together and build stuff and you can go make a good living doing that, have fun every day, enjoy the guys you're around and be moving and you know satisfying yourself, that's success. And I want our kids to see that. The event will highlight non-traditional secondary and post-secondary educational paths, as well as area businesses who hire directly from such programs. The free event is Sunday, May 15th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the North Stonington Education Centre. <music> That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East this week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening. (music) 